Welcome back to Decouple. Today I'm joined by Aiden Morrison, and I'm just reading his uh, Twitter description here. Lapsed physicist, entrepreneur, blogger, interested in small bars, small boats, and big data. Um, you run a YouTube channel, um, Miltech and Tech, I believe. Um, Aiden, uh, you've you've kind of uh, burst onto the scene, um, you know, as as small and peripheral as it may be uh, on the nuclear side, but I think also um, in a much bigger way um, within the Australian context. Um, you uh, have dug up some very interesting information about um, some of the uh, energy modeling happening in Australia, as exciting as that sounds, uh, but it's it's gotten picked up. Um, Claire Lehman of Quillette, uh, it's been covered uh, in national media, and I believe I've seen some footage of politicians on the floor, it may have been uh, you know, state houses or national parliament also talking about it. So we're going to get into all that. Uh, but first off, uh, why don't you build off of, of that Twitter bio and, and tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, I'm Aiden. I grew up in Tasmania, um, little island at the bottom of Australia. I now live in Sydney, um, studied physics at university, which was, uh, which was great fun. So I actually studied a little bit of nuclear, um, yeah, nuclear physics, um, and took small courses in my master's, or not my master's, in my honours year in nuclear reactor design, but not to become a proper engineer. These were just kind of, you know, the, the end on courses in a sort of third, fourth year physics degree. Um, so learned to, learned to get to know a little bit about nuclear uh, things then, and then had a totally different career. Started a PhD, which I quit in uh, experimental particle physics, uh, the Atlas experiment at CERN. Um, quit that to become an entrepreneur. Um, and so my first big project was in the military tech space, which is why I still sort of have an interest there in the Mill Tech and Tech channel. Um, fell into hospitality, actually. Opened a bar restaurant with friends. Um, then got into a bit of economic and policy analysis for a bit of a change. Um, learned to code doing that. Became a data scientist. Been doing data scientist um, and uh, sort of machine learning things. Software engineering, sort of building out uh, things for trading platforms recently. Um, so, and then, yeah, dipping back into this, uh, energy space, uh, uh, it's been really sort of exciting and sort of kicked off. Yeah. Just from Twitter debates recently, but yeah, a bit of a mixed background. Um, yeah, quite, quite a mixed background. I'm not a professional in this space by any stretch. Um, but I've just got some, got some skills to be able to think about numbers and data and stuff. So it seems to be working out. Definitely. Definitely. Um, listen, I wanted to start off, um, with, you know, we have quite an international audience, definitely a pretty dedicated following in Australia, but. Um, I had the opportunity uh, to travel down, give a speech in Australia and, and you know, spend about 12 days um, not really sightseeing. I, I did see some roofs and uh, some wombat poo, which was, uh, you know, top priority bucket list for me, <laughs> um, but also got to meet with uh, a number of, of politicians, policymakers, think tank people and yourself uh, had a great night out in the town with you. And uh, that was that was a lot of fun. Um, but uh, yeah, for the international listenership, before we get into um, sort of what you've uncovered and, and the, the muckraking that you've done uh, with regards to um, some of the. Uh, again, modeling that is the kind of evidentiary basis for the bold leap um, that Australia has taken and is planning with with further um, renewables deployments. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to get some of your insights um, on, again, this this context, the country that you're speaking to us from, the continent you're speaking to us from. Um, so, you know, just, just a couple of my own observations that hopefully I get you to riff off of. Um, I was a little yeah. surprised. Um, you know, I, I, we think of ourselves, I think, as being quite similar Commonwealth Cousins is, is kind of the moniker I used uh, in the talk. Thank you, uh, Bob Parker, for that. Um, but uh, I think some pretty significant differences. Um, I came away with the sense that Australia is kind of a petrostate of minerals um, that still very much um, 
you know, in its economic relationships, a bit of a colony. Um, I guess the joke was colony of the UK, then colony of the US, and now a colony of, of China. Um, you know, this economic complexity ranking, uh, number 93 out of 133 countries, uh, just above Pakistan, just below Uganda was, was pretty surprising to me. Obviously, vastly different GDP per capita, et cetera. Um, but, uh, you know, these are some of the things that, that stuck out to me um, and uh, frankly have me, you know, a little bit worried uh, about my Commonwealth cousins. So why don't you build off of, of that uh, introduction slightly? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm making some comparisons to, to Canada and Ontario more broadly. Um, you know, certainly I think the West in general has undergone a fair amount of deindustrialization, um, you know, with, with, uh, with globalization. Uh, but, you know, we've, we've retained a lot of our economic complexity and our kind of value add. And in Ontario, I'd make an argument that nuclear has been a huge part of that in terms of, you know, pretty robust precision manufacturing uh, industry. And everything that goes into supporting our nuclear industry. Um, so yeah, riff off that. Uh, give give some more insights to our international audience um, and to your Australian brothers and sisters about uh, your take on on uh, the quirky <laughs> country that you're from. My scathing view of Australia. I mean, Australia is the greatest place to live. Um, it's it's just great, and the people here are brilliant. But I feel like I'm a sort of tiny little microcosm of, of what happens in Australia. Um, I studied physics uh, partway through a PhD in experimental part particle physics. And my first full-time job was um, running a coffee shop, um, working, making coffee. And I feel like that's a, that's a kind of like trite little example. And, I didn't, and that was partly by choice and I was trying to become a, an entrepreneur at the same time. But we have this thing in Australia where the people you meet and the degree of education they have and the skills they have are, are, are brilliant. Like I think Australia is packed full of brilliant people. And if you look around the world at where you see Australians around the world, it is, um, I think we're an impressive bunch. Um, and in various things in the arts and sciences, we, we punch at our weight or higher. But yet there's this weird thing where we don't seem to be able to coalesce that into any kind of industry or institution of excellence that has kind of reached some sort of critical scale or mass, um, much bigger than like a really good cafe. Like, you know, as in we have the best coffee in the world. You really um, do. Uh, like bar none, right? So, I mean, that's, that's it. So how, how do we get this kind of extremely, extremely well-educated, cultured, civilized group of people and our, our, our top achievement as a nation is that we're the best place to come and, and buy, uh, you know, a corner, you know, a, a great coffee. At a corner at a funky cafe with good people in it and like you know yeah. and and that's that's absolutely saddens me um i mean there's lots of other it's, that's a that's a parody of course it's you know there's plenty of good things happening in australia but in terms of the the giant institutions and the top companies if you go down the top kind of dozen sort of you know asx companies pretty much we have a couple of big miners and we have banks selling mortgages to Australians, right? Like, you know, the joke I've heard is that, like, if you look at other countries around the world, they make stuff like Germany and Japan and Korea. They make stuff like ships, electronics, like, you know, cars and sell it to the world. Australia makes nothing and sells it to Australians. Like, that's what, that's what our housing and insurance industry is. Um, so, um, it, and we still manage to be very wealthy because I suppose the services we have um, uh, making ourselves out coffees and delivering things and just getting getting the place to run is is overall pretty competently done there's good people here and we um uh but in terms of like you know what we are great at like what's the greatest Australian export what's the what's the ikea or the panasonic or the you know you know hitachi or the siemens what's what's the what's the australian heavy hitter 
we have none except mining companies. Um, and yeah, that's kind of disappointing. <laughs> Uh, you know, Rob Parker, we had him on a little while ago. Uh, check out that episode, uh, Avoiding an Energy Blunder Down Under. Uh, he talks about the relic economy, which I thought was a great way to sort of summarize what you said, real estate, law, uh, insurance, and coffee. Um, and yes, I can attest that the <laughs> coffee was absolutely amazing. We flew back through LA and had some airport coffee. And I mean, I'm not sure if like Mick Cafe in Australia, it's got to be better. I meant to sample it because I'm like, if, if like the absolute crap coffee that there should be some sort of like international standard of shittiness. Um, is way better in Australia than, than I'm in the Matrix or something. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a point in Australia where McCafe actually had this big mea culpa and they said, like they ran this national advertising campaign in Australia and said, we're sorry our coffee has not been up to scratch. We're going to put extra effort in and retrain our baristas to try to meet the standards that Australians expect. <laughs> well, if, if, I mean, not to get too far off track here, but if, if they're called baristas in a McCafe, I think that, that speaks loudly enough. Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> wow. Yeah, your barista at McCafe is, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. So. Incredible. Incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, get, getting into this uh, kind of economic complexity thing, I mean, I, I think there's, uh, it's, it's somewhat understandable given the richness of, uh, you know, Australia's minerals and the proximity to shipping, like, you know, just this kind of dig and ship model and the competition, frankly, uh, with North Asia. Um, you know, I understand Australia had a pretty significant auto industry. Um, but, you know, to be charitable, I guess, it's, it's hard to compete in, in manufacturing in a globalized world. Um, do, you have, do you have any insights into sort of why that has, has occurred? Uh, you know, Australia dropped, uh, I think, 38 places in its economic complexity, not to harp on that too much, um, since 1995. Um, is this just, you know, an inevitable result of um, being close to these highly productive, highly complex northern Asian states? Um, or is there something else going on? That's that's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure fully about the answer to to all of that. It's a it's a hell of a question, but um, I think part of it is that yeah, I mean, car manufacturing is an interesting one. Um, it's sort of it's it's sort of been bandied about um, politics for a while because it is it is hard to compete. But I've also heard people say that the degree of protection or the degree of subsidy required maybe to keep that industry. Um, compared to a whole bunch of other things that you might need to do to kind of, you know, nurture or create an industry, um, might not have been that, that high. It's still, it's still a protection of sorts and uh, a relatively kind of liberal economic kind of viewpoint. I like the idea of it. Um, but, yeah, that, that went offshore. We're, we're a long way from anywhere, um, and that doesn't matter too much so long as you're, you're putting it on a ship and it's not time critical and it's not that valuable um, to, um, for the time in transit. Um, but developing the more valuable goods, I mean, the more valuable the good gets, um, the more costly in terms of the supply makeup, the time in transit becomes. So we're, yeah, we're not a good place for intermediate assembly. Things have to come to us, like from, I don't know, other sophisticated places like Europe and America, which is as far away as it gets, and then go back there. That's That doesn't make as good intermediate place. In terms of value adding, it's really interesting. I grew up in Tasmania, and Tasmania has amazing hydro. And there's a few more rivers we could dam, but I, I mean, there were big campaigns to save them. And I personally have been in the... My mum grew up in those campaigns. I've got a fairly green kind of background in my family. And, um, and yeah, those rivers, I love that things like the Franklin River aren't dammed. They're just incredible, incredible... Um, world heritage sort of area uh, things. So, but there was a movement. Part of, I think, um, the Tasmanian polity was this kind of vision for trying to have, use energy for extra cheap industrialization. Like I think there was sort of this kind of, Tasmania could be the hydro powered rural valley of Australia um, vision. 
And there is some smelting that happens in Tasmania. Um, and also, I suppose, there's, kind of this, there's been various things about like raw materials extraction improvement. There's a big discussion, Tassie, about developing a pulp mill that was very controversial, not far from where I grew up. And, um, and yeah, that eventually fell apart. I mean, after the company put a lot of effort, they pretty much hung, hung themselves out on that one and uh, bought up all the vineyards, like a beautiful, beautiful, lovely little area, bought up a whole bunch of vineyards to try to not have too much resistance to it locally and all that sort of stuff. And eventually, I think the economics didn't quite work out or they'd reached out too far, overextended themselves. Um, but, yeah, those kind of improved manufacture things have always been hard. A lot of it's a bit of conservationism, like, is it, I mean, as in not wanting to develop. Um, and I'm, I consider myself a bit of an old school conservationist in the sense that, like, protecting the forests and protecting the landscape and keeping this pristine is important to me. Grew up bushwalking, love it. Um, but I feel like there's, a, there's an inherent resistance to kind of a big new industrial project that happens in Australia. And I think that's a little bit of what taps into the kind of nuclear space as well, like that inherent kind of like, oh, there's a big new industrial thing um, that's happening. Um, but, yeah, I don't know why we can't do a little bit more and better in that space. It's a, it's a, I think there's opportunity. I think right. we should be able to punch a little bit higher than we currently do in terms of advanced manufacturing. You know, part of what is interesting about the energy debate is – the energy um, modeling and, and the plans uh, that are laid out um, seem to be leading to some pretty eye-watering prices and some real questions about reliability uh, of the grid. Um, and we, when we look at countries whose economic complexity is even lower than Australia's, um, a commonality is often that they have an unreliable grid, that they're scourged with blackouts and that that impedes industry. And so the kind of uh, manufacturing that uh, Australia continues to have seems to be at threat um, from these high prices, and we've seen, you know, the rapid deindustrialization occurring in Germany, for instance, um, as its energy prices have, have really gone through the roof. And you know, even in in the mineral sector, when when I was invited to speak, I said, you know, what, what's the motivation here? Because um, you know, renewables are great for the for the mining industry. There's uh, you know, enormous amount of uh, rare earth minerals and just you know, steel and, and iron ore, for instance, that are required. And you know, you, you build a few nuclear stations in Australia. Does that have a huge impact on the amount of uranium you mine, or your customers there? It's such a small part of, of uh, you know, the running a nuclear power plant. And, and, you know, my sense was it's because even the mining industry is starting to be a bit concerned about um, the reliability of, of the grid and the cost of electricity in Australia consuming something like 10 percent of, of Australia's electricity. So that's I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, I guess, um, poke a little bit at, at what motivated your interest in energy. But any thoughts you have there in terms of, you know, whether Australia's economic complex is going to fall even further or whether there can be, you know, deindustrialization of the industry that, that still remains as a result of, of energy policy. No, I don't actually think so um, because I don't know whether we have much discretionary industry that has somewhere else to go. Like I think the industry we have is making stuff that we kind of need here that's too expensive to get. Like there's a certain amount of things like, I mean, like bricks, right? We have brick making companies and their energy is gas right so there's always right. a bit of a hoo-ha about when gas uh, prices go up but they i don't think it's realistic i mean maybe it is who knows shipping's pretty cheap maybe it is realistic to ship bricks but you can see why you wouldn't want to do that right so yeah. um so so these things actually like the industry will cry out and scream and shout a little bit and prices will probably go up and the rest of australians might just pay more for stuff that probably has to get made here i'm not i don't know whether we have really that much industry that is could be made anywhere and Australia is the best place for it except in like very very you know I mean there I mean there are there are specialty tech sectors but in terms of things that have kind of scale and big inputs and big material inputs and 
um, like cars or bulky manufactured goods. Um, I don't know. We have so I don't, I don't really have much left to lose. Is kind of one way of saying that. Um, and uh, and the other thing is, um, I mean, as far as the mining and production goes, I mean, that's that's really interesting. They have huge advantages in terms of like the quality of the ore that we have at certain places is just great. Like the best iron ore in the world, um, bar none, is in Australia, and we're closer to Asia than Brazil. So I mean, we just we just have a massive lead there. We're not close to being pipped off number one. But you could muck that up, right? I mean, these, these huge-scale industrial processes are fine-tuned to be the most efficient they can be. A few blackouts and not having reliable power, I'm sure, would be a pretty serious issue for them. Um, so maybe we can lose that. I mean, the other thing, but the, in, the industry kind of that Australia never has, right, for, or is struggling to have, for example, is man, making steel, which is tiny compared to the amount of coal, including coke and coal, and iron ore we export. And we have this other weird geographic problem where all the really good iron ore is on one side of our country and all the really good coking coal is on the other side of the country. And uh, our, our unions won't let us ship uh, iron ore around the, the country, right? That's, that's basically prohibited. Um, so we can't combine our world-class iron and work world-class coal into making world-class steel um, because of, you know, labour arrangements, basically. So that's impossible. So energy is not a critical input. But anyway, that's, that's kind of the predicament Australia is in. And like building a railway line that's 3,000 kilometres long across the, the middle is, I mean, it's maybe, but not really likely. But um, so, yeah, that's where I don't know we have much to lose um, actually right now, but things would get way more expensive for Australia. We just pay more for everything and it would be hard and our quality of life would, uh, would, would suffer unnecessarily, which, it, which is a real shame. <laughs> right, right. Well, maybe we should uh, move along to um, the energy situation, the electricity um, planning that's, that's occurring right now. Maybe, maybe you could summarize that for us. I, I did have the chance to look at uh, some modeling again, um, courtesy of Rob Parker. And I mean, what's, what's planned sounds pretty extraordinary. I, if I have it correct, it's, uh, you know, final deployments of 60 gigawatts of rooftop solar, 60 gigawatts of utility PV, 60 gigawatts of wind, 7 gigawatts of gas. There's a lot of 60s in there. Suffice it to say, that's, that's a ton of renewables. I'm not sure the overall side of, uh, size of the Australian grid. I think it's something over 38 gigawatts. So um, maybe you can you do a better job than me sort of summarizing what's, what's the plan. Um, and then we'll get into sort of, you know, what led your intuition to go, maybe this doesn't all stack up in terms of the cost claims. But first off, you know, what, what is the plan? Yeah, yeah. Australia's been coal-fired um, uh, mostly for, for quite as well, as for as long as I, as back as I can remember looking at it. Um, we have we have some some gas. Actually, again, most of it's on the Western export. There's plenty here too, but less of that's been developed recently on the East Coast. The kind of the some governments have been sort of trying to put pressure on that. Um, but we have so much coal, ridiculously good amounts of coal. Um, so electricity is made by with coal for as long as I've ever looked at it. Um, and so only in the, really in the last sort of 15, 20 years have people been actively trying to move away from that. And there's been some, some small gas power stations added to the system, but the big push in the last 10 to 15 years has been to sort of add, add more renewables. The plan that's been produced that everyone's sort of following, the hymn book we're sort of all singing to, when I say we, not me personally, but Australia, is something that came out of the uh, Finkel review. Uh, had a chief scientist uh, who kind of said, how do, we, how do we make the grid sort of work with more renewables? And he commissioned, or he, he said that we should have more central planning of the transmission. So AEMO, our Australian energy market operator, that normally run the, the live auctions to dispatch power best producer to the, to the grid. They were given an expanded role to kind of think about how to plan trans- transmission across the whole east coast of Australia. It's called the national energy market. It's really the east coast states plus South Australia, which is mostly Australian population. Um, 
So that they, so that's the AMO ISP, and basically the AMO ISP has been a plan to produce renewables. It's been a, it's been a basically renewable centric plan, and and that's not their fault. That's not a conspiracy. It's because um, Australians have clearly, fairly, clearly indicated they want to go to decarbonise, and uh, net zero is now an official policy. It was actually adopted by the Liberal government, so in a sense that's sort of bipartisan. So AMO's done nothing wrong in the sense of trying to map out a renewables plan because nuclear has been banned has been banned for quite a while in Australia. Um, so that's the plan. And the plan at the moment, if I was to characterise the step change scenario that AEMO has, um, it's a – and that's the, that's the most likely plan according to the latest uh, uh, ISP, integrated system plan that was produced. Um, they have to risk mitigate a couple of other plans that map out different scenarios. But the far, by far the most likely one that everyone talks about, this step change scenario, is basically to build – a lot more rooftop solar, expand that five times, heaps more industrial scale, grid scale solar, heaps more wind. And, uh, and then the thing that no one realises is the big, the big thing that fills out the massive wedge there is a thing called distributed energy storage. So the vast majority of our firming capacity is assumed to be Powerwalls and Teslas that get plugged in from people's homes and dispatched to the grid. Um, and that's, that's, that's the big... That's the big thing about the step change plan. It basically assumes that we have about 45 gigawatts of dispatchable battery capacity, but it's all in people's homes and garages. Um, and, and that, by the way, is not costed. There's no cost associated with that in the plan. And there's no cost with any of the distribution networks um, uh, upgrades that are required to make that amount of batteries and all that flow between your neighbourhoods and whatever else. Um, so that's the giant, the giant big, what's step change about? Step change is about batteries in your home that, that the consumers will buy. Um, they are far, far bigger than the batteries in the grid and they are far, far bigger than even the pumped hydro in the grid by capacity at least. So that's what everyone should, when they hear a step change, they should think, ah, oh, right, my car, my power wall, that's what step change is. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it sounds like there's a love affair as, as there are in many places in the world. And I think particularly um, on the left side of the political spectrum with this idea of distributed energy resources. Um, you know, the economic analyses I've looked at, rooftop solar is, you know, far more expensive and less efficient than utility grade solar. Um, so from a perspective of just, um, you know, basic economics and, and trying to, if you, if you are going to subscribe to a renewables centric vision, um, you know, rooftopping it seems like a more expensive way to get there or, you know, distributed battery storage versus centralized battery storage. Is that playing into, you know, this kind of national psyche and phobia surrounding large centralized industrial projects? It's a really good question. I don't think it is playing too much uh, in terms of people, people's phobia. Um, oh, Do you just have a blackout? Light switch again. <laughs> yeah, just, just one second. <laughs> For those of you listening, the, the lights just went out uh, in Aiden's building, but I think it's just a, a timer. I'm, I'm right back and the lights are back, the lights are back on. Um, yeah, so uh, as far as people's reaction to kind of that decentralized versus centralized thing, I don't think people are too averse to centralized batteries. I mean, we don't know what they look like except for the cool one at Hornsdale, and there's been a couple more that have added since. Um, but no, I think, there, I think there is a love affair with uh, rooftop solar um, and it's still the bit of the transition that is proceeding apace. Um, people are still putting lots of rooftop solar on their roofs. Um, and 
And the problem with that, though, is that that's basically driven by um, a totally unsustainable economic um, pattern where we give people the right to have their power bills reduced in proportion to how much energy you save through your rooftop solar panel. But actually, most of your power bill, like more than half of it, is actually for the distribution network, the transmission network. And the, and the energy retail. And you need the same amount of all those if you want to stay connected to the grid. So, so the maximum you should ever really be able to save, even if you had the biggest, best battery system that got you 99.9% um, with rooftop solar to, to having your own power, the maximum you should be able to economically save is about a third of your power bill. Wow. But you can save 80 90%, right? So, so, so the, you're incentivized quite strongly financially because the power companies still recoup all the distribution or most of the distribution and uh, and transmission costs through your volume usage. The incentive is much, much bigger than the actual power that you save the grid. Um, and and the, really pro- the really problematic thing with that is that the, the, that means that all the power companies basically have to shift up their average prices to cover the fact they're not selling as much power to a bunch of customers and and particularly those customers, they're always buying power when the wholesale price is expensive and they're never buying power when the wholesale price is lowest because solar is starting to really tilt the uh, the wholesale prices too in the market in Australia. So, so it's a weird situation. We've got this, uh, this, this potential spiral, this feedback loop where um, the incentive to put a solar panel in your home gets higher the further the power prices go up. But the more people that put solar panels on their home, the higher the power companies have to raise their prices to, co- to cover the average cost of delivering, of meeting all their needs. Um, so, so, yeah, rooftop solar is still growing um, apace because of that. But it's uh, this incredible, um, incredible, I think it's an, yeah, it's, it's a disastrous economic sort of feedback loop that we've set up. But it feeds into this idea that I think taps at people's heartstrings very closely, which is that, wow, I put that thing on my house, I can see it, it's feeding into my home, I'm taking demand off the grid. It's this kind of, this kind of very, very warm, intuitive and tangible thing where people feel like they're doing their bit and they feel like the economic reward, the financial reward they get is in proportion to that bit, which it's not. It's terribly out of proportion to that bit that they're doing there. But um, that sense, I think, is nurtured very strongly by the economic reinforcement you get from something that feels like you're doing a bit. But, but as you say, yeah, uh, like literally a million tiny solar cells versus one big solar farm, like it's the, it's the worst in every sense in economically engineering. No economies of scale, terrible to control. The, the grid operator can't see rooftop solar. They have to guess how much is there and what the impact is. They can't. It's just, it's just a demand that doesn't happen. But they don't, they've got very little visibility. And when a cloud blows goes over somewhere and a whole bunch drops out and it creates it creates a nightmare for the grid i mean amo's being all chipper about it and saying yeah new challenge to manage and we can do it and maybe they can but like it's um it's it's of course it's it's not it's 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 the worst way to build solar if solar was the solution um but it's the only way that economically we've got the incentive set up to drive out really quickly um so it seems to be popular and it's rolling out the pace I was reading about an interesting event in South Australia, which I think has the most aggressive uh, renewables uh, percentages. Um, and there was an intertie that was knocked out. Maybe my geography might be spotty here, but between Victoria and South Australia, um, super sunny day. And the grid operator basically was telling everybody, you know, try and disconnect your, your, your rooftop solar array and turn on every single appliance you possibly can um, <laughs> to deal with this, this surge. Uh, which which is interesting, but just you know, again, I, we're going to get to the meat soon enough. Uh, there's been a lot of interest about the <laughs> muckraking you've done, but I, just the context is so interesting in terms of that distribution side of things. I mean, two questions here: 
can the grid operator like are are these um these uh rooftop based systems controllable at all by the grid operator and also in terms of this plan to have everybody buy a tesla which you know is is a, a big ask in terms of how much a tesla costs these are you know, largely luxury vehicles evs uh but the kind of distribution upgrades needed for a whole neighborhood um to be uh dumping power back onto the grid in terms of a sort of two-way circuit um with with their batteries and, and rooftop solar what's what's the state of things there in terms of you know distribution upgrades that are required is that is that sort of something that's discussed or costed in or factored it's it's well there's a clear answer in terms of our emails isp the integrated system plan so the official document that is our, our roadmap um, of how to do this it does not cost any of that they absolutely stop at the transmission network they do not cost any of the distribution network it's just assumed in fact i found the table and i'll i'll share this i think in my next uh, video that shows them saying explicitly they assume the distribution network costs remain constant forever while we get to 99 percent evs and assume that those evs can charge the grid um, uh, whenever we need to. So this crazy, crazy stuff there. So EMO doesn't. Is there any other discussion about it? Um, not very much publicly, um, but the distribution companies, and I found, and people who follow me very closely into it might have noticed, but there are, there are plans from the distribution companies basically they're foreshadowing in their next kind of price raises. <clears throat> they're asking the regulators of commission to increase their prices that they charge through the electricity bills in order to cover the costs of increased distribution, uh, distributed, distributed energy resources, so these Teslas, these Powerwalls. So it is absolutely happening. Um, they're relatively small increases, I think, across the Powerwall, like a few percent at the moment. But, I mean, it will definitely accelerate as we get towards like that, you know, if we get to 99%, we only have a few percent of EVs at the moment in Australia. Um, so the, the writing's on the wall in terms of there will be costs. They are starting now. AEMO has ignored it 100%. That's not their jurisdiction or domains. They have not included that in any part of the plan. But, yeah, but just thinking about what it would require, because um, Step Change projects we get to 99% EV usage uh, by, by 2050. Yeah, I think about that and I, found, I find it really amazing. I mean, I live in a suburb that's sort of medium-ish density urban area and I live in an apartment. There's 15, 15 uh, apartments in our building and... Um, uh, we mostly have garages, but some a lot of I, we park on the street because the garage is too small and too hard to get into. So, lots of people in the eastern suburbs, uh, for example, and lots of other parts of Australia too, they park on the street. So we couldn't charge an EV unless there's on street parking as well. So you need to figure out you need, there needs to be a parking. Every garage needs to have a charger, and every apartment building has to have every underground parking spot has to have a charger. Um, and I've looked at the assumptions about when we're going to be charging. It won't be 65% of the time in step change. It's not at the convenient time for you, which is when you get home from work. 65% um, of the time, it's going to be pretty much when there's extra capacity in the grid and they model it is that you can then soak up the extra wind and solar that's, that's there. So, um, so I think that actually none of that will work very well at all if we don't have faster charges, um, because the moment it takes to charge an EV, it's something like an hour will get you 15 kilometers, which is a trip to, I don't know, school and back or the office or whatever. Um, but if you ever want to go further than that, you need a lot more than what you can charge per hour. So it's to get a full charge, it's like a day or two, a couple of days, like it was continuous charging. So it makes sense to me that everyone at that kind of rate of charging would want to plug in as soon as they got home and start charging and not stop, and when it's fully charged, probably not have it discharged because it takes you hours to get back 
anything more than a corner store trip. Um, so I, I mean, I can imagine people being quite willing to try to contribute to the grid if it's incentivized and if it's possible. And I would think either you need to pay them something good for the risk that they're caught short, that, they, that their car might discharge all of a sudden and go back into the grid. And by the way, to discharge fast enough, I think you'll have to, dis- you'll have to upgrade the grid to be able to discharge fast enough to help the grid meet those, those falls. Um, but I think also you need to be able to charge. If I could charge my car in four or five hours, maybe I'd be much happier to say, well, let's leave it to start charging at two in the morning. Um, that'd probably work much better for me but at the moment. So we're talking about stupendous distribution upgrades there um, to be able to have that degree of um, charging. I believe, I haven't tried to cost it at all, so take this with a grain of salt, but like these are big loads. Um, cars are more powerful than you know the other appliances in your house. So um, if everyone is doing that, and I mean, it's easy when there's only like a couple of percent of the people doing it, but when everyone's doing that, this is going to change things a lot. And none of it's priced in Australia. None of it's priced in our master plan, the, the AEMO step change. Okay, so you've been the sort of pesky thorn in the side of um, several of the major agencies that have been doing the modeling, uh, CSIRO. Um, maybe we'll, you know, I don't know that these acronyms are, are super important to disaggregate, maybe just the function of, of each of these uh, institutions. Um, but more, more interestingly to me, and maybe to the narrative here is, you know, again, kind of how you got interested and in, in your intuitions, and, you know, that led you beyond intuition into using your data science skills to actually deep dive these documents, but what was, how did this all begin? I understand there was kind of a Twitter debate um, and you, you started digging, but I, I want to get at this, this intuition. I think you talk about it in your video, which, which we're going to obviously link to, but walk me through that. Yeah. So um, uh, yeah, this was just a Twitter debate to start with. And I was debating um, with someone about, oh, you know, the problem is that it'll get harder the more and more renewables we get and the costs will start to increase. And I had an intuitive idea about how that must look because um yeah, as you put more and more renewables in the grid, um, basically, yeah, more and more of the time you'll have too much at one place and you'll have to move that energy further away. So you've got to move the energy somewhere once you've got too much in one place or waste it. Um, uh, but that will increase the amount of transmission or storage. Either you've got to move the energy through space or through time. Um, you can trade off those two, but you can't move the energy less far and you'll need to move more and more and more of it. And the very, very last bits of that, as you start getting to the point where you've got like nine, 80 90%, You've got very, very rare pockets where you don't have enough energy. And so whenever you add more stuff, it never falls into those pockets. You've got to add stupid amounts more stuff to move it further and further to get that. So my intuition is a sort of a ski jump a ski jump shape um, in terms of the resources required, the size of the system, um, pretty strongly. I think you'd almost prove this mathematically. I don't think it's really disputable, really. Um, and so I, I hadn't looked very deeply at any of the literature, but in one of these Twitter debates, um, someone... Uh, came back at me and said, oh, of course we don't believe that. Of course we know it's it's going to go up, of course. But here's this graph in the CSIRO that shows you how much it's going to go up. And it's this nice little graph that just shows you these tiny, tiny little steps. It's almost flat and kind of perfectly monotone little steps in the increase um, of cost of renewables, meant to be at 60, 70, 80, 90% uh, renewables. And I looked at that and I was baffled and I said, oh, that can't be talking about the full cost. That must be just talking about maybe some spillage or something like that. And, uh, and they said, no, 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 look at the paragraph above. It says that it's the cost of integrating renewables, all the transmission, all the storage. And I was like, what the, this makes no sense. Um, and so I, I apologized, I think, quite politely and said, sorry, I didn't, I didn't read the, the full thing and uh, went back and looked at it. And that's when I started later on looking at about page 50, how they define this. And page 50, they said, they described their business as usual case which was not included in the cost of integrating renewables. Business as usual included 
all the things that we had planned to build for our massive epic renewables transmission out to 2030. And we're meant to be at 82% um, renewables by 2030. So all the massive, the, the biggest, most core trunk infrastructure projects, particularly to link our population centres in Melbourne and Sydney, which is a big part of our population, like maybe 40% of Australia's, and the Snowy Hydro 2.0 scheme, which is kind of halfway between, but way up in the mountains and off the coast. Um, all the transmission to link the kind of coastal and flat inland solar and wind to the Snowy Hydro and Sydney is planned to be built in a hurry right now um, before 2030 and the Snowy Hydro itself. That stuff is all excluded. And there's a whole bunch of batteries as well, like 8 gigs of batteries in New South Wales and there's a bunch of other things as well. Oh, and there's a connection to Tasmania, another another new pumped hydro scheme in Tasmania. So it's an underwater cable DC tie um, called Mariners Link. So all the biggest, most headline trunk kind of core mega projects for renewables were excluded from this cost of integrating renewables. And the way that they justified that was just to say that it was, oh, we're only looking at the marginal cost after 2030 um, and kind of arguing that basically because that already would have built that stuff at the time, the stuff that connected to them after that had nothing to do with the business case um, of actually justifying building that stuff. So just absurd, bizarre things. And, uh, and yeah, that's how, I, that's how I kicked off. So I, I kind of noticed that and um, found it confirmed in an appendix. So everyone had just looked at the graph in the executive summary, sort of page two or three or something. And in page 50, it explained pretty clearly that they had missed out the lion's share of the heavy supporting infrastructure. And they confirmed it again, that that was treated as a sunk cost in page 90. And so, yeah, I came out swinging and, um, and, uh, and, and wrote back. And, and no one, I mean... And the rest is history, but no one has been able to respond and say you got it wrong. In fact, the chief energy economist at the CSIRO, after it got picked up in the paper, wrote back and confirmed that they indeed had not included any of those costs. Other people were trying to argue that maybe some trick of the wording meant they had included those costs, but he confirmed uh, in, in, the, in the national newspaper they had not included all the costs up to 2030 and said, oh, that's fine, it's the ISP's job to do that. Um, and so... And, of course, the ISP doesn't include any of the distribution network upgrades, any of the uh, battery storage in your homes, doesn't include Snowy Hydro 2 as well because that's something that they've already started building, so they just don't include that. So, And it's, it's crystal clear that just hasn't been clarity of communication because Paul Graham from the CSIRO, Chief, Chief Energy Conference CSIRO, um, uh, he said that it is the job of uh, the ISP to do the full cumulative system costs up to 2030, but yet in the details of the ISP because things like Snowy Hydro 2 are, in, are assumed in all scenarios. They're an exogenous input. They're not testing the transmission plan around. They actually don't include that too. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's 100% like there's a, there's a perfect gotcha there. There's no wriggle room. He said that included the full cumulative cost. AMO clearly does not. And that's been confirmed in correspondence to Claire in the Australian too. So they don't include the Snowy Hydro. It's in neither. This massive big mega project that justifies these huge high voltage lines between Sydney and Melbourne and all the renewables areas around it. That is not included in the cost of either document. Um, it's madness. And we have been lied to a bit by Paul Graham in that sense in, 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 his, in his letter to the Australian newspaper. I mean, what always strikes me as interesting, um, you know, beyond Australia um, with, um, you know, the renewables intensive plans and renewables advocates, um, you know, that there's not an evidentiary base that this works. Um, so it relies heavily, well, exclusively on modeling. Um, but in Australia, maybe it's, a, you know, as a function of being an isolated continent, 
Um, you don't hear a lot. I mean, there's a diversity of modeling studies. They tend to come from institutions that have a significant, I think, buy-in and, and there's some ideological blinders, um, which probably skew the modeling. Um, but even, you know, modeling from the States, I see, you know, um, Net Zero America saying, you know, having some clean firm is going to, you know, decrease your overall costs. But it, again, in Australia, it seems like there's this kind of oracle on the mountain and it may be several different institutions. Uh, but the degree of, um, I'll call it, you know, pseudo-religious faith in these institutions and in the modeling, I found to be totally extraordinary. Um, you know, a failure to plan is planning for failure. But if you're not even considering the possibility of failure um, and having any kind of plan B there, um, that seems to be a big problem to me. I think you always need to sort of red team your ideas. Um, and maybe you can comment before we get into more details um, about that phenomenon, I think. Um this kind of faith that's placed in these institutions, you know, more broadly within, you know, Australian society, within the political class, within media. Um, to me, this seems like a bold experiment, uh, a highly consequential one if it doesn't work out. Um, but there's, you know, a real lack of of considering the what ifs um, and, and a faith that it's all going to go fine because, you know, these institutions are telling you so. To, I hadn't, I, I've come to this debate, you know, um, very quickly, quite recently, but like it, it hasn't been on radar to follow this very closely and, and sort of really critique the cultural take on this. Um, uh, honestly, more than a year ago, right? I haven't been very closely following the kind of how they regard it. And even probably a few months ago, if some, you know, if you told me AEMO's ISP says this, I would have assumed that it was um, the authority and and very good um, on that. So, I. I wasn't aware of this kind of um, the degree. I think you as a foreigner have unique insight into the degree to which we have this oracle on the mountain. For us, it's the kind of the only place you'd look, right? Because we're, we're an island and like we don't have, we don't, I mean, if you're in Europe, for example, there's a dozen different countries with their own universities and institutions and power managers and whatever else and different ways of doing things. They'd be easy neighbors to compare to. We don't really have that so much. And we, yeah, we are an island in that sense. And the other thing is we're an island at the moment that is, I think that Australians have become quite seized of concern um, uh, around climate change. There's a bit of a split. Like there's 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 a part. It was in. It was possible for quite a while for the Australian politicians to not be that concerned about it and uh, and not do something for quite a while. But I think the the gravity has shifted um, uh, in Australia, and now it's kind of politically assumed that we do care about that and we need to do something about it. Um, and this is the this is the weird thing about. If, if nuclear is banned in Australia and you're quite seized of the need to go and uh, to go and sort of remove you know all the carbon from your uh, electricity network, you don't really have any options. And in a way, I kind of have a forgiving moment for AEMO for being kind of like you know, well, what would you do if if you were the agency who was charged with delivering a clean transition uh, in Australia and the and the other option was banned? You'd have to put on a pretty smiley face and you know <laughs> grit your teeth and and say let's go do this right like what i mean what are the other things come back and say oh no it's too hard for me like you know you don't, you don't keep your job in the public service or make any friends with the, your sort of uh, political masters by by saying that so in a sense i feel like just having removed and banned any competition from the table has um has meant that we have to have faith that it can be done <laughs> Um, and it's kind of blinded us to kind of critical thinking about whether there's even a different way because we've sort of silenced the other, the voices in a sense. And now it's sort of, it's sort of weird. I've encountered this 
you know, rapidly connected to this nuclear movement, a bunch of people that are, you know, underground sort of rebels in Australia, but there's a lot of them. There's a whole bunch that are extremely accomplished in a whole bunch of fields and engineering and business and et cetera. Um, but, yeah, but they're, they're the ones and we're total outsiders and not given a lot of airtime and attention and certainly not from the institutions. Um, and I guess they have an excuse because this is not even legal. Like, you know, Emo can just write back and say, yeah, we don't, we don't cost illegal things in Australia. Therefore, our baseline that shows that this transition is cheap is trying to do a renewables transition without any transmission. And that does look quite expensive because it's all like offshore wind next to your cities and carbon capture and storage for gas plants and things that are even more kind of wildly expensive. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's sort of, I think a big part of it might have come from the fact that we were isolated. But also when you take out any alternatives to investigate, um, it's very easy to develop this kind of dogmatic faith that you just have to do it, right? Like, you know, it's just you didn't choose this war, this war is coming. You have to believe you can win, right? So um, it's and, – and so I suppose I think we seize upon the sources of truth that affirm what we want to hear, which is that we can, we can win. Um, uh, and, and yeah, I think it's really bad. It's only just starting to, starting to crumble a little bit the edge, uh, quite recently, but at the, uh, up until very recently, CSIRO and even still like Chris Bowen's still at it so far. Oh, he hasn't for the last few days, but even weeks ago, after I'd released plenty of information, come out in the newspapers, was still repeating. In fact, he'd gone out of his way to pretty much write new newspaper articles in the Fin Review, in the Australia. He'd gone out of his way to write editorials that pretty much said, trust in AEMO, trust in CSIRO, this is still the cheapest, even though the basis for that had already been extremely credibly um, uh, critiqued. Um, he just came out and said, just, just said, one more time, please. AEMO and CSIRO have said this is the cheapest. Therefore, it's the cheapest. Let's go. Um, and that's, I think that's just really disappointing politics. I mean, that's, that's a, that's, he shouldn't get away with it. And I don't think he will in the long run. We've got another year or two to the next election. Um, but I, yeah, but that's, that's what happens in Australia. Um, yeah, I mean, if I had to tell this story and, and your role in it as a children's fairy tale, um, it would be the emperor is not wearing any clothes. And you are the, the young player um, <laughs> who is pointing that out. <laughs> and it looks like Bowen is like, yes, he is. Yes, he is. You know, check out those duds. They're, they're pretty sexy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think what you're saying, you know, there's, and the reason that this is coming from outsiders is, you know, talking to some folks um, who help manage the grid and, and it's getting to be a very complex um, system. And I won't name any names, obviously, but, you know, there there's, I think, an understanding um, that, you know, this is a huge challenge and that it may not work out. Um, but this, it's not a sort of career advancing move um, to raise the concerns that you're raising. And, you know, again, in terms of that unwillingness to consider um, the possibility of failure um, on a psychological basis, I think that really comes from, you know, the idea that, you know, cl climate change is going to be so cataclysmic. There, there is no option for failure. We can't fail and we'll do whatever it takes to make this work. And as you're saying, if you narrow the options to, um, you know, wind, solar and batteries only, uh, that leaves you in a bit of a predicament. But, you know, again, I, th I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, I think energy is deeply aesthetic. Um, you know, in terms of what we were talking about before, the kind of distributed versus centralized. Uh, but, you know, our, our ideas around energy transition are, are, you know, obviously deeply kind of psychologic and, and again, um, related to that, that framing that climate change gives us um, that we just can't fail. So, so let's not even, you know, consider that or, or red team it. I'm not sure your thoughts on that, but. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. The other thing that to think about um, really carefully though is that um, how I suppose the institutions and the industry people and the people that have expertise like what are the incentive structures that are set up for them um it's i mean it's it's sad if it's the case that in a emo or the other official institutions you might lose your job or not get promoted because you're holding outside of views that you know we should do nuclear i have reason to believe that might be the case actually uh, which is sad but but even just thinking about let's let's take AEMO out of the picture let's assume that there you know something might have gone wrong there but if you think about if AEMO gets it wrong or doesn't handle it what are the other institutions or capabilities um, that kind of end up just getting stuff done, right? Like, you know, if, if we have to keep the grid running. And I think that a fair bit of the talent lies in the private sector, maybe the regulated parts of the private sector, um, but the people that are actually running the transmission systems and building the transmission lines and keeping the grid stable from that perspective, um, there's maybe more, there's, there's smart people there, I'm sure, um, but what are the incentives there in these other kind of talent pools or people that run generators or have been installing generators? The, the incentive structures there aren't necessarily uh, for you to speak out either because transmission and distribution, they're regulated assets. So saying that we need a whole bunch more of this stuff right now, it kind of, it kind of suits them really. It seems to suit them quite well. Like, you know, um, I suspect they know how hard it is um, but making your job harder, provided you are guaranteed enough money to be paid to keep doing it, um, is, is not, it's not bad for you personally um, and uh, not bad for the business you work for either. Uh, so I think there has to be, there has to be really clear. I mean, so, I mean it, it is, a, it is a, a problem which you must, must consider is that the emperor really has no clothes and we just haven't had the, the motive, if you like, for enough people to really... Um, start speaking loudly enough uh, with enough authority. And I have no, I have no credibility. Like, to be honest, I haven't used any of my data science skills yet. I just read to page 50 and page 90 and, and wrote about it on Twitter, right? Like, you know, I've, and, oh, and I opened some Excel spreadsheets, but that's, that's nothing, nothing seriously data science-y on any of the stuff that's, uh, that's made it to the public. I, I, some data science stuff that I tend to do, but um, uh, it's, it's, nothing's required yet. It just requires, I suppose, I don't know, literacy and numeracy and, and a bit of backbone to speak up but i think the people that have the most um the most need to be diving into the detail actually that's what i have done i've dived in a bit further than most people have um and are familiar and confident enough to speak about that um and maybe i'm just i don't know an odd character that's happy to speak up about something that i'm not qualified in but um the people that should be qualified enough they're not necessarily incentivized to speak loudly um which is which is an issue so yeah we might just not have we could not have contemplated failure and possibly because all the backsliding and all the things that would catch us from the, the bits of failure we might have, it looks relatively profitable to lots of the um, institutions and organisations that, that might end up, you know, just, uh, just handling it, you know, if we have to keep the grid running that way. So, yeah, it's been totally under-contemplated. Uh, there are people starting to make noises now, but in terms of the, the credible things, the press, the politicians... Um, yeah, I think the uh, the extent, and, and that's the problem with the renewables transmission a transition, right? And things don't things don't break all at once. Um, like in a nuclear power plant, if something goes wrong, you generally shut down. And if something was badly wrong, then you generally have the regulators crawling all over you for ages to make sure that you've definitely, definitely, definitely fixed it right. But if something is not designed right, it doesn't go together right in the renewables transition, um, uh, it just gets less efficient. 
it just gets more expensive. Like someone just pays a bit more. We decarbonize more slowly. We waste some more energy. We just turn on some more gas. Like, you know, that's, there's nothing catastrophic that might even trigger a serious degree of, I don't know, introspection or repentance. Like, you know, the, the costs are kind of diffused, the blame. There's so many different layers of institutions and organizations and regulation and government. So, and that's what I'll be looking more at for my, my next video, hopefully. But, um, I think it turns out that many of these uh, business cases and things that we're very sure of are actually paper thin in, or maybe should have gone the other way um, quite significantly. Um, but there's been no trigger for pushing back and reevaluating. Like once a project has a bit of momentum behind it, everyone just wants to get it done. All the people that are smart around it are about to make money by doing this thing. Um, no one wants to kind of say, oh, actually, this doesn't make any sense anymore. That will move energy in the wrong direction. This will probably uh, mean that we, you know, I mean, so yeah, we end up paying more for this electricity or that power's not going to be available there to offset the lull here anymore. Um, generally, once it's got a degree of momentum behind it, the industry just supports it through, I think, and there's some real cases where Australians need to... Yeah, this, this, I think, yeah, we could... Much more on this later, but there are some... There's some disasters unfolding. <laughs> there really are. And, in fact, all of, I'll just say quickly that all of the Snowy Hydro, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that the whole Snowy Hydro scheme should be built now at all or any of the transmission to and from. I think that it's just been, it's in like, you know, both documents just assume it's there and all the transmission projects, they work if it's there and we have to connect to it. But this whole thing that kind of pretty much has been the central piece of our whole East Coast grid planning, I don't think that it's necessarily obvious that the whole grid doesn't work better, cheaper, even for renewables without it there. Um, and... I think that it's possible that that just has not been tested in any of the official uh, institutions right now. I mean, it, it seems uh, like what you're describing, it's, it's analogous in terms of the kind of, not necessarily in, institutional capture, but this kind of self-licking ice cream comb element, element of it to the military industrial complex. I think, you know, to coin a term, maybe we have a modeling industrial complex here. Um, you know, there's definitely plenty of funds that flow towards academic institutions and uh, government institutions to to continue to study a increasingly complex and, and difficult problem. But, you know, leaving that aside, um, I, I wanted to jump back again to some uh, some of the framings that you you have in your video. And again, we're going to have that linked in the show notes. Uh, but I thought I thought you had, uh, you know, some really poignant ways of, of putting things. And one of the analogies I liked, um, and again, this this gets back to I feel like there's a lot of gaslighting coming from the renewableists. Um, but no, of course, this all makes sense. You haven't, you, you know, you just don't lack the skills uh, to understand this. Have you opened Appendix, you know, 32 and you know poured through through that? And I mean, there's there's a beauty to to going through the source literature, um, but there's some basic kind of intuitions that I think are off. So, um, tell me a little bit about this framing you have of you know the irrigation versus scuba. Um, cause I, cause I thought that was an interesting way again, in terms of, you know, broad first principles of, of understanding why this whole thing is, is so difficult, um, and, and so expensive in terms of a renewable centric transition. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. That was, I think a useful analogy, like just to think about how energy falls in a renewable sense, like it just falls in splashes and splotches across the landscape, like, I mean, like rain or wind and and the analogy I use is that that would be okay if we absorbed energy like a crop needs rain, right, or something like that. And to that extent that you don't need any right now, you don't need any tomorrow, um, but so long as you get enough overall, over a good period of time, um, over a season or something like that, then things are all okay. Um, but you have no particular fuss about exactly where and when it lands. That's That's to me is kind of how, um, that's how renewables work. We're collecting 
the energy as it falls freely and you know over the landscape in these patterns we can't control and it would match a consumption pattern of like a plant needing water so i kind of described the kind of collection process of like an irrigation system of kind of like oh we'll get it and we'll kind of just pull it all together so we can get enough of it eventually to the right place um uh and my contrast and this is kind of like why i think that renewables aren't necessarily good for human certainly human domestic uh, uh powering is that we need electricity not in that kind of pattern but we need electricity like a mammal or an animal needs air like we need exactly the right amount all the time sometimes more than others but we need if if we don't have exactly the right amount things get desperate in seconds um and so yeah the renewables issue it's not that the actual solar panels and wind farms expensive uh, are expensive they can be very very cheap but they're just the collection part of that system the energy has to be delivered uh in a manner that matches this oxygen delivering give me exactly the right amount for my breath right now which i call the scuba system so so it's the problem with renewables is not that they're not cheap to have the actual wind farms and solar panels they can be as cheap as you like it's that you have to have all this machinery to then collect it in that frame that kind of way and then deliver it in this every second your breath depends on this kind of scuba system so it's the irrigation to scuba connection the irrigation to scuba mashup of machinery that's what makes renewables hard how do you deliver it in such a precise uh um way that you need every second when it's collected in such this abstract dispersed kind of you know fluid flowing unpredictable manner um yeah so that's that's why it's hard and i think that's the bit of the system people don't cost um we never have before because we've never had electricity produced in and i produced is the wrong word i don't even we shouldn't even call them generators can i propose just to everyone here like let's let's not call solar and wind farms generators um that's an active verb that implies that you are controlling what you do right and that's not what they do i i call them the best word i come up with <laughs> spitball another one of you if you want chris but i call them collectors right they are they are finding energy that f- occurs in the landscape and they're picking up what they can find but they don't have control over that it's fundamentally a kind of a foraging process it's not making something like an industrial process we say start producing x and go and produce it which is what you can do um with thermal power plants so this kind of passive collection will get what we find out there approach to energy they call it generation it's not it's collection it requires this whole other system to then convert it to this life-giving steady stream like we need every breath every moment that's the expensive bit and that's the transmission and that's the storage and that's why that's why i think this um yeah the renewables transmission is transition is not nearly as cheap as everyone has commonly thought about it yeah right or or even possible in terms of you know the highly consequential matter of delivering energy like like oxygen um it, another thing from the video i really liked was um you, you know you how you're explaining that early deployment of of wind and solar within an existing traditional energy uh framework um it, it's fairly easy because you're just sort of fuel sparing and dialing down um this underlying reliable generation system as you were saying um but then as you start to blow up those coal plants or you know get to a certain uh point um in renewables penetration um then you can't just rely on that that backup network to float the whole society when you have not even a black swan event but when you know the weather doesn't cooperate for an extended period um i did have a really interesting discussion um with uh a, a staffer from uh chris bowen's office and we had a sort of battle of the incubators um 
you know, I was bringing up how I view the grid as a, you know, civilizational life support structure. And I think what made that very <laughs> personal and poignant to me was the fact that my son was in an incubator for five weeks. Um, and, you know, imagining an electrify everything world that's run with collectors and this kind of Rube Goldberg machine attempting to turn irrigation into scuba. Um, that's, that's consequential. Um, and again, it's a way that, you know, it bites right at the core of my being. I get emotional talking about it. Um, and the staffer was like, oh yeah, well, my child was in an incubator for eight weeks. And I'm like, well, does it not concern you? I mean, again, just, just open your mind to the idea that this might not all work out. You might end up with a highly unreliable grid. And he's like, well, that's why hospitals have generators. And, you know, like I, I've worked in a hospital, we had a road crew that ended up digging up our, our grid connection and we went on to diesel backup. I mean, A, that's, that's a pretty traumatic experience for the people responsible within the hospital for getting that system up and going. We did some load shedding. Um, interestingly, our vending machine still had power, but certain areas were shut down. Power was off there. And, you know, hospitals uh, are not as robust as nuclear stations in terms of defense in depth. And, you know, just the kind of callousness with which he said, yeah, well, blackouts will happen. But, you know, um, we're, we have our critical infrastructure like our hospitals is back. Don't worry about it. Well, we'll have the diesel for it. Um, I just found to be, you know, just utterly, utterly shocking and irresponsible. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm just kind I, of I agree. Yeah. 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 Um, OK, what else did I have here? Um, one other point that that's brought up often is, well, it's always windy or there's always sunshine somewhere. And again, the staffer also made that point with me. Um, I did point out, you know, and I, I should try and forward along the data I had if, if I can find that person's email. Um, Rob Parker was showing me some periods on the NEM. Again, that very thin East Coast uh, transmission system for those unfamiliar with the Australian context where, you know, there have been prolonged periods of minimal sun and, and wind. Um, but yeah, I think you had a good response to that in the video as well. I just want to riff off some of some of what I felt were the highlights of the video. Yeah. But how do you respond right. to that? It's always it's always sunny or windy somewhere. Um, why, why is that not a, a solution to this this whole problem? Yeah, it's it's I I call it I call it this statement that's perfectly true and absolutely useless. Um, because to make it useful to have some wind somewhere, you need to have enough wind or sun somewhere to power somewhere, right? Wherever that is, you still need to power whatever that is, and you need to have enough to power everywhere else as well. <laughs> and you need to have the transmission to get that power to everywhere else as well. Um, it's it's the most it's the most ludicrous idea. They'll be, they'll, you know, because there's a little bit somewhere everywhere's fine and that's all good like um it, it just means you have to have this ridiculous idea of the overbuild at that location so that it's got spare capacity for what it needs there and to send everywhere else and the capacity to move it there it's like this it's this perfect image of just not having thought through um you know how real energy works at all yeah i mean it's just i, I honestly anyone if you ever you said that before just don't say it again. It just sounds so, so stupid. Like, you know, it is, it is true. It is just so, so useless to think that, you know, because it's sunny somewhere, that means we'll have power everywhere. Like, you know, right. um, imagine I, what I, you yeah. have to do to make that the case, you know. These, <laughs> so, these, feel, like, um, these feel like such truisms um, and they're, they don't require a massive amount of modeling or uh, analysis. Um, they, they feel like they're just common sense, but they almost feel like weaker arguments up against this kind of modeling industrial complex. But um, I, well, I wanted to let me, yeah, let me, go ahead. Let me riff, go ahead. Sorry, 
Yeah, no, no. Just a little bit further. I mean, I think that a popular perception that people have is that um, the grid is kind of like once something goes in the grid, it's sort of everywhere in the grid. Like you know, it's sort of a it's sort of a super connected thing, right? And and essentially, I think it's a real problem that the what we call the copper plate model, the infinite transmission model, is that if it goes in the grid, it's it's everywhere, right? Like the grid, the grid connects it all, right? That um, unfortunately, I think to the layperson, that's actually where they start. They think that the grid is like that. And then a bunch of people that should know better that are kind of professional make models that pretend the grid is like that. Um, we have this, again, kind of this kind of weird <laughs> axis of deception between the least informed people and the most informed people that seem to have an agenda to push to kind of say, yeah, it'll all work if we just kind of you know, model everything as if it's a copper plate. Um, but people don't realise that actually the amount of interconnection that you have between two big regions like, you know, I mean, South Australia or Victoria or Victoria or... Or in, in, in Europe, right, like between different countries or under certain seas, like, you know, the amount of connection that you have is generally something in the order of like a gigawatt, like, you know, sometimes it's two or two or three, like, you know, sometimes it's a half or a third of a gigawatt, but like, but this is enough to replace like a big power station, a, a power station. Not the whole state, not the whole country. Um, a thought experiment I actually had over breakfast the other morning that I would love to, love to actually make a real experiment is to figure out like, you know, if, if a country lost all its power, what fraction through the interconnectors of its power could it get from all its neighbours if it had enough, um, uh, if all the neighbours had enough power to, to give them for free? And I think that people don't realise that it's not a very, it's not actually a very big fraction. Like these are meant to support a relatively small top up. Um, that you might need it's never meant to support like half or most of that whole country or state's um, power so moving like you know uh, powering victoria from queensland is strictly impossible like nowhere near and and nothing we're contemplating building will get us anywhere near being able to do that right so um yeah i just think this unfortunately this copper plate model is is it's an intuitive first place the grid the grid connects it all right it's completely connected like the internet connects us all. We are all completely right, connected. Right. It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not true it's not true for power. Um, it's got a capacity. It's got a bandwidth limit. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, I think these copper plate models, like, again, I just wish that – I wish that people were ashamed of producing them and using them to draw the conclusions they do. They're still not. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's strange. But it's just such a – it's just such a far from reality approximation. And it reinforces this really quite intuitive but not right – perception that people that have no information in the space kind of uh, take with them all the time as a starting point. I, Denmark might be the closest country to a copper plate. Um, and it, we had a conversation uh, with, uh, I think it's Jonas Legrand, I might be messing up his last name, but they have more intertie capacity than power generation capacity in country. It's just ridiculously oh. connected with it. But anyway, that's definitely not the situation in Australia. <laughs> that could be true. So, so yeah. the other... The other talking point that you know came up in in my debate um, on uh, Channel Seven. I'm blanking on the guy's name. Highly accomplished Order of Australia type guy. Um, but you, you hear this a lot. You know, Australia has the best you know wind and solar resources in the world. I think you know the Simon Holmes Accord. Vast areas that are windswept um, and sun drenched, and you know huge open plains uh, in which to distribute. You know to deploy uh, this this. Uh, these this tech um and that this this gives australia you know um you know an advantage or it it was really interesting the concession uh from a lot of the anti-nuclear folks that hey nuclear works great elsewhere it just won't work in australia because our resources are so it's such a concession i found that really interesting they were willing to make that you know given where the anti-nuclear yeah. debate was at it'll mutate your children or whatever you know 5 10 15 years ago 
Um, but <laughs> exactly. in, in, ter- in terms of, uh, you know, the capacity factors in Australia, how much do you have a sense of like how much better they are? I mean, clearly solar is far better in Australia than Europe. Um, but I mean, I imagine Arizona is pretty analogous. Is there something that's so special about Australia? And with regards to this idea of, you know, kind of a land without a people for um, a people with lots of wind and solar, um, how, how true is that in terms of, you know, how people are feeling in rural areas around hosting this stuff? Yeah, I find, I mean, I hear it all the time. Exactly as you described it is exactly how I would describe it. Like, you know, this, uh, this concession that, oh, nuclear maybe, but we have such good renewable resources. Um, we couldn't. It, it would like, almost here. as if wind turbines and solar panels sprout like plants out of the out of the ground, right? Like that's that would be the impression. That would be the impression you get, right? But but hey, but no. To answer to answer the real question, I want you to uh, entertain that idea. Imagine if, and this and this is sort of my answer to why that's not a compelling advantage, right? Imagine if wind and solar panels were not cheap; they were free. Imagine imagine they sprouted out of the ground, literally. They just they just kind of popped up, and we had so much space; they were just everywhere. Why would our electricity not be free? And, and the answer is that we still have the rest of the, you know, machinery to get it from the irrigation system to the scuba system to build. Right? Like it doesn't matter how much we have. We can have any amount of free solar panels and wind turbines out in wherever they are. And I'll get to that in a sec. Um, we still have to connect them up and make sure that energy is kind of pooled and aggregated in a way that delivers it in the nice steady moments. You know, we need it into our population centers and cities. So I, I actually don't think that it's... Um, I, I, I think it's I think it's silly. It's intuitive. Again, it's a first cut kind of like quick knee jerk, most intuitive thing to say. We got lots of it, right? Therefore, it's good. We can just use this. Having lots of a thing. Um, the, I mean, the thing that you have lots of is this sploshy, splashy kind of intermittent energy. That's not the thing that you need. You need the steadily delivered kind of energy, right? So you've got lots of a raw material. Like imagine we got lots of iron ore. We should have great steel, right? No. We don't because we need the coke and coal. It's the other side of the country, and you're going to move it around, right? So, um, it's 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 just as simple as that. Like, what you know, we, we've got the raw one of the raw but very cheap inputs to what we actually need. We don't have the rest. That's not free. We still have to build it. And in fact, when you look at the kind of the issue with Australia, like you know, oh, we've got so much land that we 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 don't we don't use such abundant land. Like we're not space constrained. Actually, Australians have already found economical ways of utilizing that relative abundance of land, and we have relatively lots of agriculture, like you know, and um, and yeah. So, like out to a very, I mean, say there's not in Victoria, it's very full. We grow wheat, like you know, if you go 100k in land, it's lots of wheat country. Like so, the, the amount of space where we kind of like generally ours, there's nothing else to do with this little land. There's no, no other competing options. Is um, I mean, you've got to go a long way inland, a long way inland to get to kind of like there is nothing going on here, no production. And then if you want to get that power to the cities, it's a really long way away, right? So um, you tend to build things. And if you look at the renewable zone mapping um, that Australia has in the ISP, the renewable zones, these kind of like kind of oblong, not oblong, you know, oval, like elongated oval kind of ellipse shapes that are meant to have a, a transmission line going through the guts of them, I assume. But they're, they're big and there's lots of them and they, they're kind of everywhere except within about 100K of the city. I think they've figured out that land's too expensive there, but, they, but they, they kind of cover most of the east coast of Australia. There's a zone somewhere on the map to be planned in the next sort of 20, 30 years. Um, so the plan is to build everywhere along the east coast in land that 
does have other uses we've already figured out. And this is what I think we're starting to realise is that, you know, you've got to go and clash with a lot of farming communities, a lot of agricultural communities and say, hey, we want lots of this space. We want big power lines down here. And, it, and it's starting to annoy people. I think that's what's starting to kind of ignite a bit more of the sort of um, resistance through normal move out. But, but we haven't, we, we have figured out uses for lots of our land. The land that we haven't figured out any uses for is miles away. Um, and all that abundant energy is just a very cheap raw material input to produce the kind of energy we actually need and consume in our society. And we still have to add all the other things that we need to make it that actual usable uh, system. So it doesn't matter if we have literally solar panels sprouting out of the ground in our unused vast landscapes uh, for free because we still need to connect it. And, and that's what I think, yeah, uh, that's what I think unfortunately means that nuclear in Australia is still the best low-carbon energy option, um, even though we have all these abundant raw resources. Finishing it, just like our coal and iron ore, we can't finish it and make steel, much of it. Um, the raw inputs aren't very important in the scheme of things. You have to have the rest of it and advantage in them too. So I'll, I'll freely admit to, to having a psychological bias towards a little bit of uh, catastrophism. You know, I thought COVID was going to be far worse than it was. Um, my brother was more on the sort of Y2K is going to crash society. I didn't jump on that train. Uh, so I'm aware of cognitive biases and the need to challenge them. Um, you know, after that meeting with the Bowen staffer and, you know, that was just the day before we left Australia, it almost felt like I was getting off of a sinking ship. Um, and clearly things are going to move in much slower tempo. And there's some ability to absorb pain within such a wealthy society that still has, you know, such a valuable set of uh, export commodities. Um, but you know, I really had a, a premonition that things um, were heading in a pretty dangerous direction. Um, just uh, to get your sense, how do you see the next 10, 15 years going in terms of um, this energy transition and its consequences um, and, and the prospects for nuclear? I'll make that kind of a closing um, question, I guess. Big question. Um, but uh, yeah, give me your sense of uh, where, where, you, where you see things going. Look, I, I, I'm, I'm not a catastrophizer. I think I maybe have the opposite bias, not sure, but I'm, I'm relatively kind of like, uh, I mean, I don't know, just at peace. Even if there's a catastrophe, uh, I think I can kind of just try to calmly kind of slide into it um, without, without too much uh, uh, excitement, agitation perhaps, um, maybe. But I, I'm not, I think that Australia will be nuclear at some point in the next few decades. The question is really like what it takes to, to get us there. Um, actually, that's not perfectly true. There's a chance that we may just still stumble and wind up just with lots of coal still. That's a possibility as well. Um, and so I, I hope that it changes really soon and that we wake up and realise that nuclear is the only thing that kind of finishes the decarbonisation race and we should start it straight away so that we can finish the decarbonisation race, race um, quite soon. But in the next few years, there is an absolutely critical, like we are absolutely the fork in the road. We've reached sort of 35 40% renewables where right now we're about to start figuring out whether we want to keep going to very high levels of renewables. And to do that, we at some point need to start building these huge amounts of infrastructure and storage. And we've already started building some of them, right? So Snowy Hydro 2.0, and we've started with uh, Energy Connect and this HumeLink VNI West. These are the big trunk transmission lines. And I think there's a huge question about whether they happen um, because they will cost billions 
uh, a good number of billions, um, Marinus Link as well. And I think we're on a tipping point where we could wind up like Germany uh, with just having waltzed into higher, much, much higher power prices that do affect what industries we can we can support and do affect quality of life and, you know, standard of living. Um, I don't know how far down the German path you have to go before you come back. And Germany's an amazing experiment to kind of see where that leads, right? Like, you know, but they absolutely have, you know, yeah, they've, they've engineered it. They just haven't realized that it's not coming back down. Like, you know, the prices, it gets harder and harder and the prices will stay high and get higher again. Um, so, gee, I, I hope we don't go too far down that route. I hope we realize that adding, more or less replacing our coal fleet with nuclear is about the right thing to do. And renewables are not that harmful in a grid so long as they're not harmful. They're not that economically disastrous to have that not that helpful thing in the grid at around about the percentages we currently have them. Um, but we're about to tip over the brink of putting enormous, enormous investments um, uh, that are only useful for supporting renewables. And they definitely will be added to our regulated asset base and we'll have to pay for them somehow. So um, I, I have the sense of trepidation about what happens in the next year or two or three, what happens in the next ISP, Integrated System Plan, um, because all of the, and, I, and this is a bit of a spoiler, but all of the projects that are now being rushed as the most urgent priorities, the true economic analysis in the ISP said that that was an absolutely not a knife edge, according to their numbers, and there was no real need to rush them at all, and they could have been left to the next one a couple of years later. But they're being rushed now, and I think the narrative has taken hold that we have to keep rushing them, um, and actually we don't need to rush them. It's it's only economically in the interests, really, of the renewables investors because they'll get less curtailment. They'll get better dispatched to the grid. They'll have a better return on their investment. So in terms of the overall thing, us having to pay a little bit more to more curtailed renewables operators is probably borderline no worse than us paying a little bit more for massive big transmission lines. In fact, with new numbers, it's probably much better. Um, but we haven't realised that and we're on the tipping point of now committing to these enormous mega projects that um, we would never need if we had nuclear in the system. Um, but we're, we're buying them now. We're committing to them now. So it's a fork in the road. And I do worry about our lifestyles and our um, standard of living taking an unnecessary hit because we just... Uh, It'll gain so much momentum. We will uh, we will do another five, ten, fifteen years, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of investment, and it will be more or less wasted once we once we finally turn around and, and go nuclear, which I think will happen at some point. There'll be a revolt at some point. There will be a Germany at some point too. I think, um, but um, but yeah, the next year is 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 crucial. Uh, people don't realise where we stand on that stuff, uh, and. Uh, and I think that I really hope we, we wake up and, and, and walk back and, uh, and, and can these transmission projects, um, which, which won't get us to full decarbonisation and won't do anything at all if we decarbonise through nuclear. Well, as a climate hawk, I hate to say this, mate, but long may your coal stations hold up. Um, <laughs> In terms of just propping up this grid, <laughs> you know, I mean, that that was sadly, that, sadly. that was I think that was again from the Bowen staffer a key thing was just like you know nuclear would have to be ready in time for our end of life with our coal stations and not just you know the sort of strictly speaking premature end of life of of the climate imperative but also just the physical end of life of these stations that I believe are mostly built in the eighties. 
um, you know, the timing of a coal to nuclear transition is is pretty sensitive in terms of, um, you know, being able to fit something in both for the stability of your grid and also for um, the the lives of of those communities and workers um, who depend on on those assets uh, and and you know, on on having something <laughs> to replace coal in their communities, but. Well, I just hope that the staffer is like actually kind of weighing up the costs of closing that little gap with, you know, I don't know, some some cheap quick gas plants or something like that, because the costs we're about to sink into the enabling infrastructure for renewables and, and closing the gaps between, you know, every cloud blowing over and every sunset and every lull in the wind is just absolutely profound. So I tend to th- look at those kind of what will it take to keep coal running? What will it take to close the gaps with something else in between? And say, yeah, we, if we need to, if we need to plug some gaps there, um, we probably can still and should do it. Because if you weigh up the costs of doing that compared to what we are about to spend on on the renewables transmission, uh, etc., it still might look very, very cheap, very, very good value. So, I'm, I, I think that we will, I think that we will get there eventually anyway. And the lifetime of a particular coal plant won't matter a dime in terms of what the right policy is because the end state um i think is is relatively clear as the one that's sustainably economically low carbon okay Aiden, i could talk to you for hours um this is one of the longer Absolutely. couple episodes <laughs> it's been a lot of fun um everybody hop over to yeah. youtube um mill tech and tack is that tic-tac-toe what's what's the uh yep it's mill tech and tack m-i-l-t-e-c-h-n-t-a-c mill tech and tack uh, it's for military technology and tactics, which is it's a shortening of those words, which is a interest area of mine for many years. Um, but yeah, that's the channel I had awesome. and uh, started launching into this stuff on that. And give Aiden a follow at uh, Quixotic Quant um, on Twitter. Uh, one of the most uh, underfollowed uh, people, I think, compared to the, the quality of your output. Um, so uh, get on that as Thanks, well, Chris. folks. Um, and Aiden, I'm sure we'll have you back at some point in the near future. Thanks for staying up late to uh, get this done. Cheers, Chris. Really good to talk to you. All right. Bye for now.